Welcome to episode 52 of the In All Things podcast, a podcast where we host conversations about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we talk with Caitlin Schess about her book, The Ballot and the Bible. It's a timely topic for an election year, and in this conversation, we talk about the ways that Scripture has been historically used and abused in American political life. If you've ever been uncomfortable with some of the ways that the Bible gets cited or ignored by candidates, we hope that this conversation sheds some light, but also that it offers some hope that Scripture might actually have something constructive to say about the way we live together in public. As always, we thank you for tuning in. If you haven't noticed, we are in an election year in the United States. I live in Iowa, which has traditionally been the site of one of the first presidential primaries, the Iowa caucus. It's a sort of litmus test for which presidential hopefuls are actually viable. And this means that various candidates roll through our county, seeking to gain traction and resonance with voters in the Middle West. One of the ways that they do this is by leaning into religious faith. A couple of months ago, a number of Republican candidates came together for an event in our community. The large part of the focus of that event was on the role of faith in public life. There was broad agreement that protecting religious liberty was a priority, but there were differing points of view when it came to how faith concretely can inform politics. One candidate said that it is mostly a matter of leading by example. Another candidate cited Jesus' message of love your neighbor. Another cited the importance of making space for faith-based organizations in the public sphere. Putting faith and politics together can be tricky in a diverse society. I want candidates to feel the freedom to allow their personal faith to shape their political service and to be able to talk about what that means in a way that makes space for others. But I also confess that more often than not, I feel uneasy when candidates begin to talk about their faith. I wonder if they're just trying to say the right thing, just trying to get votes. Sometimes it feels that the Bible is just a prop and that scripture citation is just virtue signaling. What is the right way to cite scripture in political life? Is there a right way? What can we learn from the ways that scripture has been used in politics throughout the history of our country? These are the sorts of questions that Caitlin Chess asks in her book, The Ballot and the Bible. It's an account of the ways that the Bible has been cited publicly throughout American history, from John Winthrop's reference to America as a city on a hill to the use of scripture at presidential prayer breakfasts. It was an illuminating book and a fascinating conversation, and I'm delighted to share it with you now. So I'm joined now by two guests. The first is my guest co-host, Joya Scruz, who is a senior student here at Dort University studying theology, English, and music. Joya, thanks so much for hosting with me. Of course. And our featured guest is Caitlin Chess. You may know her as a regular co-host of the popular Holy Post podcast or for one of her books. Her first book was entitled The Liturgy of Politics, but it's her new book, which is the subject of our conversation today, The Ballot and the Bible. How Scripture Has Been Used and Abused in American Politics and Where We Go From Here. Caitlin, thanks for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. So obviously this is an election year in the United States, if people haven't noticed. Um, (laughs) But the themes of the book 
are of perennial interest to Christians or should be, uh, regardless of whether we're an election cycle or not, because they're about the way that the Bible uh, has been used and abused, as the subtitle says, in American politics. These are also themes you've been studying and working with for some time. So I wonder if you could share a bit of the origin story for this book. What made you want to sort of study this and write about it? And then I wonder what the greatest surprise was uh, that you found uh, from the time that you began writing it to the time mm. that you finished writing it. Yeah. Oh, those are great questions. Um, yeah, I had no plans truly of writing a book while I was in a doctoral program. That was, <laughs> that was not a plan that I had, nor that my advisor had. But um, <laughs> I got, a, you know, a, an idea got a hold of me, and I was really kind of couldn't let it go. And part of it came out of, you know, I've spent the last few years since my first book was published in 2020 speaking to a lot of churches and Christian schools about faith and political life. And there were two questions that were easily the top two questions that I would get asked after I would speak. The the second most frequently asked question would be just some kind of Bible verse, like Romans 13, tell me about that. Mm. Or given to Caesar, what is Caesar's? Tell me about that. So people were curious about how certain passages fit into their understanding of their political life. And I tended to not talk about some of those kind of explicit passages about government because I wanted us to move away a little bit from just focusing on those and wanted us to think right. about the story of scripture as a whole. But people had questions about those. Mm. And then the number one, easily the number one most asked question I would get would be people saying some version of, how do I have a relationship with this person in my family or this person who sits across the pew from me? How do I have conversations with them about political life? And it was almost always, how do I have conversations with fellow Christians about political life when we disagree really deeply, but I want us to be able to have conversations. And so over and over and over again, I kept getting in conversations with people who would say some version of, you know, I want to have a conversation about this policy issue with my parents or my friend or my neighbor or this person in my church, but we end up just kind of throwing Bible verses at each other. We're not having productive conversations. We want our political lives to be shaped by scripture, but we're doing it poorly. And so I first just wanted to write a book about that. How do we read scripture for political purposes? How do we have some sense of what we're doing when we're using the Bible for politics? But I figured that if I started out with just, okay, does Romans 13 apply to Black Lives Matter protests or to COVID restrictions? Or the temperature is so high already. We already know what we think. We have an idea of what the other person thinks. We don't tend to have great conversations when it's the heat of the moment political issues. So I thought, how could I give people tangible examples to think through? Because I think we need those to think well about how scripture applies to political life, but not the kind of pressing political issue of the moment that we already kind of know what we think and what they think. And so I thought historical examples. And I especially wanted us as Americans to think through what are habits of scripture use in politics that we inherit, whether we realize it or not, across denominations and theological differences, are there things that just as American Christians, mm -hmm. we kind of learn about how scripture applies to political life? And to answer your second question about what most surprised me, I think what surprised me was that some of our habits are very similar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so some of them are different. Like I, I wasn't surprised to learn that we used to use much more obscure biblical references in our political life because there was higher biblical literacy. Um, mm -hmm. But what I was surprised by was how often I would read letters or sermons from you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago in our own history and hear very similar things. Like they could have been plucked off of mm. Facebook posts or Twitter posts today. Things like, you know, we take the Bible seriously, but those people over there, they're just using emotion or they're just leaning into politics. They're not really based in scripture or how often 
actually in the Revolutionary War, for example, um, Anglican pastors who typically were not always, but were typically loyalists um, who were committed to the British crown would say things like, our churches are growing because we just preach the gospel. But the churches of of the rebels, they're shrinking because they're just infatuated with politics. And I thought, oh, this sounds like Twitter fights that happen today. So I think I was surprised by how I knew that we've always used the Bible in politics. I knew we've had failures of it. I hoped I would discover some characteristic failures. I was surprised by how much it all sounds very familiar. It sounds very reminiscent of fights that we still have today, which was an encouraging surprise because it told me, okay, I think actually looking at our history is more applicable than I even started mm-hmm. out thinking it would be. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I really appreciated about it. The use of history allowed us to sort of sneak past the watchful dragons, right, of of the yeah. things that immediately would flare yeah. up and be um, something to argue about by s- sort of telling the story. It's our it's it's our country's national history, but through telling the story, it, it allowed us to take a bit of a step back and not feel like uh, everything was at stake because it's something that mm. we already have thoughts about the way that those issues uh, ought to have gone. But I wonder, early in the book, you note this long national history that we have of reading ourselves into the biblical story. And there's something right about that. Obviously, we rightly feel that scripture has something to say to us uh, here and now. Uh, But the danger, you note, is how often we do read the Bible as if we are in the very center of history. And here's a quote from your book. You say, we pluck promises of provision or judgment that were given to Israel or the church and apply them wholesale to America. We are often narcissistic or nationalistic readers, seeing our own nation as the subject of every promise or command. I wonder if you could unpack that a bit and help us detect what are some of the warning signs, uh, maybe from from the historical study uh, that you did, that show us when we may have gone astray in the way we apply scripture to ourselves. Yeah. Oh, I so appreciate that question because it is a concern of mine not to say, let's not see ourselves in scripture. Let's Mm -hmm. not see instructions for our political life. Because I think that's a real temptation. I think some of us have seen the failures of Bible use in public life and have thought, maybe we just stop doing this altogether. You know, it's just too dangerous. And our history gives us really positive and really negative examples. One that I talk about in the book, John Winthrop's 1630 piece of writing, A Model of Christian Charity, which might have been a sermon, might have been a speech. We're not sure if he ever really said it to anyone, but this was his kind of description of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and their kind of calling to create a Christian community in the new world as they perceived it. And one of the things that he does that's really positive is he goes to scripture and sees depictions of common life and God's desire for common life for people that include things like, people might be surprised, this this language that I'm about to talk about, people use a lot, but they don't use some of his earlier language where he's saying, we'll be judged if we mistreat the foreigner at our door or the person who's hungry. Um, He gets a sense that there is descriptions in scripture of how communities best function and how God will judge not just Israel. This is true of nations in the Old Testament are judged for how they treat people made in the image of God, especially Mm. how they treat those who are in need. So that's a really appropriate use of seeing your own community in scripture and saying, this is how we will be judged by God, by how we treat these people in this new community that we're building. Some of the negative things that he does, he draws on Deuteronomy and sort of says, we will be blessed in the land God has provided for us. Mm. So then he's moving from these judgments that are given to all sorts of nations in all sorts of specific situations. We can see themes across scripture. We can see nations that are not God-specific people still being judged in this way. And he moves to drawing on a promise given to the people of God, specifically the people of God and the people of God in a specific time and place, and says, this is now this is now the gift for us. Mm-hmm. This is God will bless us in the land we are going to possess, which of course in American history, we see the great ill effects, the great evil that came out of us saying, 
this is the land that God has given us. And so we can harm other people who are living here already in mm. order to possess this land God has given us. So I think some of what we learned in that history is we can be selective um, because that historical example, there was a mix of good and bad there. But the example that we often then drew on throughout the rest of American history was the language Winthrop used drawing on the Sermon on the Mount where he said, we are a city upon a hill. And that really positive language about our own nation, this idea that we are, you know, this shining example to other nations of prosperity and goodness. That's the part of a model of Christian charity that got picked up and used throughout American history, not the part that said, we'll be judged by how we treat the the, the poor and the stranger at our door. And so I think part of the lesson there is, okay, let's, let's actually do better biblical theology. Let's see what parts of scripture, what themes, what stories apply to nations that are not God's people, and then what things really are specific to God's people in a certain time and place. But I think even more importantly than that, because sometimes that can be kind of easy. People can, in an election year, go, oh, you're misusing that scripture. That's about Israel. That's not about America. That's good hermeneutics to point that out. I think the more insidious thing that happens throughout our history, especially with this language Winthrop uses, calling this new, he wouldn't have even thought of it as a nation, but this new community of being a city on a hill is that we imbue this biblical language with all of our ideas of what that language should mean. So Ronald Reagan, who uses this language of a city on a hill, you know, decades after Winthrop uses it, describes in his farewell speech at the end of his presidency what he meant by a city on a hill. And he says, I'm paraphrasing him, but he says this is his ideas that America is this shining example of, you know, bustling commerce and a strong country. And so he's taken this, this biblical language. A few verses before Jesus calls the people of God a city on a hill, he says, blessed are the meek and the persecuted. You know, this is not a typical picture of might and prosperity. But I think in our desire, as you said, to see ourselves in scripture, we can miss the places that we see ourselves, but then also bring with us all of these ideas about what a flourishing community looks like that might not really be what scripture was talking about. And I think that's the harder error for us to identify is the times that we that we might be seeing ourselves in some sense correctly, but we're imbuing the language we're taking from scripture with all of our own ideas about what goodness and prosperity are. And they might be quite counter to what scripture describes. Hmm. Yeah, so you've given us some insight into how to discern if our interpretation of Scripture is sound or maybe less sound, um, but the fact remains that our neighbors still have different interpretations of their own. And so after reading the ballot in the Bible, readers may find themselves overwhelmed or maybe even discouraged by the dramatic range of political perspectives that one can credit to the Bible. Mm -hmm. What would you say to readers who are wondering how to move forward, worried about the ways people may misuse or abuse the Bible? And is there a way we can find beauty, not frustration, in the multivocality of interpretations? That is a beautiful question um, because I, I relate <laughs> to this sense that like maybe it's impossible. Maybe it's just too hard. I think even while I was writing the book, there were political developments, things like the overturning of Roe versus Wade, things like decisions that were made about student loan forgiveness, where Bible verses were thrown yeah. back and forth. All the all kinds of people were using Bible verses to describe <laughs> their positions. And it can just feel like not only frustrated, maybe we shouldn't use the Bible at all, but can the Bible give us any guidance on any of this if it feels mm. like it's just completely open to interpretation? I think one thing that we can do, first of all, to, to kind of remind us that it can be used really positively is, again, look to our history and say, the Bible has been misused greatly in just American history, not even speaking more globally. It's also been used for some of the greatest movements towards justice and goodness and human flourishing in our nation's history. I mean, you can't read writings in the civil rights movement or writings from abolitionists and not find 
scripture just everywhere because it was so informing what they were doing. So I think one thing we can do, especially if we're concerned about ourselves, going, am I using scripture well? I don't know, is partially reading from a diversity of perspectives from people in other times and places that can help us maybe get discomforted by their uses of scripture to kind of examine our own biases and assumptions. Uh, one of my professors in, his, in my professors in seminary would say, you know, we're going to read a bunch of spiritual formation stuff throughout all of Christian history. And he was like, we're going to read stuff that makes you really uncomfortable. And one of the kind of habits I want us to have is asking first, is this strange or am I strange? <laughs> is this <laughs> thing I'm reading in Christian history just a weird oddity that maybe I don't have to learn from? Or actually... Are our modern Christian practices the strange thing? Mm. And so I think reading from a diversity of perspectives, reading from Christians around the world and throughout time can be really helpful. But I think another important thing this history teaches us is actually that our convictions about what Scripture says about who God is, what kind of community God wants humans to live in, what kind of creatures humans are, we should hold those convictions more tightly then we hold convictions that we might legitimately have about what those prior convictions mean for our political life. I think if there's anything scripture teaches us about politics, it's that it is always in a fallen world going to be contingent and provisional. We're going to try things and then we might discover that they don't work very well. We're going to make judgments and then maybe later we decide we were actually really wrong, sometimes grievously wrong about the judgments that we made. And as long as we have that sense of what politics is, that it is important, that it matters, what the decisions we make about how humans made in the image of God live are really important. And yet we are never really saying when it comes to politics, we're never saying thus saith the Lord. <laughs> we're never making the final judgment of how humans should always be or how we should always live because we're responding to different demands at different times. And as fallen creatures, we don't have the right perspective always of what we should do. We'll make wrong decisions, even if even if they're not evil decisions, we'll still have a limited perspective and not be able to make the best decision. So I think if our history teaches us that kind of appropriate humility about our political judgments, that's a good thing. It shouldn't put us in the position of kind of not being able to do anything because our history also teaches us that God has moved in political movements in history for great good, but we have to hold those judgments loosely, which is often something I've learned from people in the civil rights movement, from abolitionists who often said, actually, I'm leaving some level of judgment up to God. I, I believe what Romans 12 says, that, that it is not, revenge is not mine to take, but it is God's wrath that will ultimately be against evil. And so I can work really hard for, for justice on earth, but I won't use unjust means to achieve the political ends I desire because I know God will ultimately provide it. So I can work really hard. I can hold my political judgments strongly, but also loosely in another sense, because I know it's not ultimately up to me. Like the weight of the world is not on my shoulders to create perfect justice and mercy on earth. I can work faithfully now without feeling like, gosh, if I'm wrong about this, then that's kind of the end of the world. Or if I don't achieve this, that's the end of the world. I have some security, actually, in an eschatological sense that the return of Christ to make all things new can give me some freedom to act well politically without feeling like I am the be-all, end-all of the judgments I make having to create this on earth. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, in the book, you uphold the Black American church as a positive example of tracing and applying the redemptive arc of Scripture, noting the special insight that marginalized people groups have into the story of a marginalized people. And just now you brought them up um, saying, you know, there's really positive examples of biblical use even in our nation's history. So is there a way that Bible readers with social power and privilege who are finding themselves in a different spot can don this good, healthy, interpretive lens? And where should someone in this position begin? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question. Um, some of it I do think, as I said, comes down to who you're reading and who you're listening to, um, which is, I think, only a first step. It's easy for that to be the last step, especially for, you know, people like us who are thinkers <laughs> and think that most of our lives are the things that we read and things we believe. Um, but that's an important first step to say there are actually, we live in a time and place where there are more resources available to us than ever before to read people in other times and other places. So for example, my church just went through Revelation and there were a bunch of women in my church uh, who were like, I don't want to study Revelation. <laughs> I've seen it really misused. I'm nervous. And one of the things I kept coming back to was both um, Alan Buzak, who's a theologian, a South African theologian, his commentary on Revelation, which is moving. I mean, this is someone who is not only commenting on Revelation, but doing it in the midst of great injustice. Like, this is not a hypothetical, theoretical question for him. What Revelation means for his political life is pressing. Reading something like that, which is actually a pretty short commentary and pretty accessible, it's not something that's just kind of esoteric that only people who spend all of their time reading commentaries could read. People in the church could be reading this. Um, or Chinese Christians. There's been some recent work published of Chinese Christians writing about politics, but even specifically writing on a text like Revelation, which is how I drew on it in my church. So I would say that's one first thing to say, sitting at the feet of people who not only are coming at it from a really different perspective, as you said, Joya, of a more marginalized perspective, but also people for whom these political questions feel more pressing and have more to do with their lived experience. I think a lot of especially more upper class Americans, politics can kind of be a hobby for us. <laughs> like I like to scroll on Twitter <laughs> and see what's happening in the halls of power. And it can it can be really isolated from the real concerns of people in our communities. So I think sometimes it's just learning from those people. And those people can be other times and other places around the world. They also can be making sure that in your community now, you're reading the Bible with people who have more of that kind of pressing political need in front of them. Um, I think of what it's like for a lot of the students that I'm around here in Durham who, you know, are divinity students. They're reading all these books and, again, really kind of heady people to show up to a community organizing meeting in Durham with other people who often are Christians and listening to them about what political concerns they have in their community and asking them what scripture they're going to for guidance, how they're understanding their political life. For people who this housing question that we might be dealing with is not an abstract question. It's where do I where do I live with my family in a safe neighborhood? What resources are available in my community for my children? So I think that's a big part of it is sitting at the feet of those people and doing it in a really lived way, um, not just having it be an abstract question, but saying most of us live in communities where we can seek out different opinions about scripture. We can live with people, not just kind of give charity on behalf of others, mm -hmm. but live with people who have these kinds of pressing political demands in front of them. And that can also help us not just, I think, read scripture better, but learn to think of politics in a more local way and in less of a kind of hobbyist way where we actually mm. can just get really exhausted <laughs> by consuming a lot of political media without actually doing much politically mm. that serves our neighbors. Yeah, that's really helpful. I want to sort of pull three threads from from what you've been saying out of this and see if we can tie them together. Uh, so the first thing is something you mentioned earlier where you said the temptation sometimes because of the way that we've seen scripture abused is to say, oh, let's just not ever mix scripture with politics, mm -hmm. but as you just noted, uh, for the Black interpretive tradition and others, that hasn't been an option. That's not an option mm -hmm. for for many people to not um, mix scripture and politics. And then uh, the second thread is this place in the book where you talk about, you know, just because we're using the Bible in public life, you're right, it's not always Christian nationalism. 
So I think yeah. that's one of the fears that sometimes we have is that yeah. when scripture is quoted, that might sound like Christian nationalism. And you're saying it's not always the case that that's Christian yeah. nationalism. So that's the second thread. And then the third thread is this quote where you said, uh, where do you see yourself in the biblical story? The black church in America read the story of the Exodus and saw themselves in the oppressed Israelites, yet the white churches did not see themselves in Pharaoh. So I'm not sure what the question is there. I'm wondering if you have any comments on those threads yeah. coming together, both in terms of the fact that putting scripture and politics together is uh, is a necessity, uh, a lived necessity for many. But why is it the case that sometimes when we put it together, we don't see ourselves um, in Pharaoh? Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes when we put it together, uh, we see ourselves only in, in the position of those uh, who are oppressed. Yeah. Um, I don't mean to be uh, the, the Bible person that just goes, oh, let me tell you another Bible story to answer your question. But I do think there's a really good description of this in scripture uh, in Luke chapter four, when Jesus is quoting from Isaiah, this is the beginning of his public ministry. And he says, you know, I'm here to give freedom to the captives and sight to the blind. And and it says all the people just were amazed by him. And is this Joseph's son? Wow. Amazing. He says this, this reading, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And it's like this amazing moment of he's starting his public ministry. This is what he's going to do. You know, Luke is kind of using this as a as a model for, okay, he just said he's going to do all these things. And that's really what he does throughout the book of Luke. But then there's this strange part where they're so excited, they're so amazed. And then Jesus reminds them of when Elijah and Elisha both went to people outside the people of God and served them and healed them. And then without any other context given to us by Luke, it just says the people were so mad they wanted to throw him off a Throw him off the hill, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then he just walks away. There's also no explanation I love for just like, and he got out of that somehow. And there's a lot going on in that passage. But what I've always been struck by is the way in which the people really are representing us in the situation you just described of they hear this message of liberation and justice and they think that's for us. Like get us out from under the thumb of Rome great, we love you. And then when he says, actually, sometimes you're not the unambiguous good guy in these stories. <laughs> sometimes it's actually amongst the people of God that the marginalized have been hurt. Sometimes it's people outside of the people of God that God's prophets go to. And that enrages them so much they want to throw them off a cliff. I think it's a good picture for us to just, first of all, recognize that this is a perennial problem for the people of God to see ourselves in the position of the hero of the story and to miss the ways in which we can actually be harming others in which actually God's message of liberation and justice might initially sound like bad news to us. It's ultimately good news to us, but it might initially discomfort us. It might unsettle some things that we've gotten really comfortable with and used to. So that's just one thing for us to to start out realizing. Um, In my own church community, a lot of times what I'll say to people is, I want us to come to scripture with the assumption that this will say something to our public life and that it might initially we might initially not like it. Mm. <laughs> it might not actually sound like good news at first. Mm. So some of that is, I think, a kind of discipleship question of have we been formed in our communities over time to expect that this will be good news ultimately, but that it might uncomfort discomfort us initially? And then I think some of it does come down to, like I said before, are we reading in communities where someone can point out hey, actually, I think this might say something different than what you think that it says. <laughs> um, I, as I said in the book, like a lot of white preachers were not seeing themselves in the position of Pharaoh, in part because they might have had close contact with Black Americans and slaved or free, but they weren't on equal footing with them. They weren't in conversations where someone could have said, hey, do you see actually how this story might be exposing something really wrong in our community, some injustice that's happening? So I think it's worth each of us reflecting on not only the things we're reading and the sources we're consuming, 
But are we extending true relationship to people in our communities who could help us see those things that we might not otherwise see? Which, as I said before, is different than my church shows up to a soup kitchen and we serve other people. That's great. I love that. I love when people show up and serve. But are you in the kind of reciprocal relationship with someone? I'm thinking of my literal next door neighbors. I live in a pretty low income neighborhood. And building a real reciprocal relationship with some of them is challenging because it forces me to accept things from people that I'm not used to accepting help from. Um, it forces me to be really uncomfortable with some cultural differences, some language barriers, things like that. But being able to be in those kinds of relationships where I can not only see what scripture might be saying, but part of the challenge of all of this history is that on a hermeneutical level, some people might have been doing fine. They might have been able to tell you the story of the Exodus perfectly. What they couldn't see was how to analyze their own social situation enough to see the right parallels. And so some of this isn't an issue of reading your Bible better. Some of this is an issue of understanding your own community better, maybe even reading some things outside of scripture, some kind of sociological accounts of poverty in your community, some you know accounts of American history that can help you see some systemic injustices, all of that work to kind of pair with good Bible reading can be really important because sometimes the failure is not a hermeneutical failure. Sometimes the failure is, I don't understand actually my own social situation well enough to see what scripture is saying to me. We are talking with Caitlin Schess about her book, The Ballot and the Bible. And one of the interesting things about this book, uh, it sort of spans American history and gives us case studies of biblical interpretation. And one of the most fascinating chapters uh, to me was this comparison between the National Prayer Breakfast Speeches of the 43rd and 44th presidents. So this is George W. Bush and Barack Obama. So I wonder if you could just give us a taste of that, just some of the insights that you found as you placed these two presidents side by side in the way that they use scripture. I so appreciate you asking that because people do not tend to think that that's the most interesting part of the book, but it's probably <laughs> my favorite oh, good. Uh, because I, I think it's fascinating. Um, yeah. So I wanted to have a more contemporary example, and I wanted us to think a little bit about what do we want from our elected leaders? Um, there's a lot of talk about wanting Christian leaders or being uncomfortable with Christian leaders. But I just wanted just to ask, as Christians, what makes a leader Christian and what do we want out of a Christian leader? And so I, I picked two presidents had very different kind of public records of Christianity, in part because they were from two different parties, in part because they kind of came out of different church traditions, um, in part because of racial prejudice in America. But one president who was kind of known as the super Christian president, George W. Bush, another president, Obama, who had to spend most of his presidency convincing people he wasn't Muslim mm -hmm. um, because of a mm -hmm. persistent false uh, you know, rumor that was being spread. So very different public records, but also two people who did talk in very different ways, but both very frequently about their faith. So George W. Bush was kind of touted as Christian president, would talk about his conversion story. He kind of has the best story ever about how Billy Graham helped him become a Christian. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of the perfect story. Yeah. Um, and how he felt like God had called him to run for president in his Texas Methodist church. And so has this Christian story, has a lot of experience interacting with evangelical political leaders, and so has that reputation. Obama coming out of a Black church tradition and really becoming a Christian by his own account because he was involved in community organizing with Black churches and finally realized, I think I need a community to go along with this faith mm. that I feel. Very different conversion stories, very different kind of Christian traditions they're coming out of. And I wanted to focus on their national prayer breakfast speeches because they are kind of this singular opportunity, and a lot of that's changed. Some of the history of the national prayer breakfast has changed recently. But in their presidencies, this was this moment for the president 
to address the nation from a distinctly faith perspective. It was more okay for them to talk about their own faith, to talk about the faith of other people in the nation. And Obama and Bush did that very differently. For Bush, surprisingly, this was probably one of – I should have said this earlier. This is probably the most surprising thing I learned in, in all of my research. In his eight National Prayer Breakfast speeches, George W. Bush never said the name of Jesus Christ yeah, once. So surprising. Which is wild. He talked a lot about God in very general terms. He talked about sovereignty. He talked about faith that was shared across the nation. And part of this is also a change in our own kind of religious landscape in America, that when George W. Bush was president, it was more common to talk about America as just generally religious. And I think he probably felt more comfortable just saying, well, we all kind of believe the same things, right? So I'm not going to get too specific about my faith because I don't want to alienate anyone. And and I want to kind of draw on a civic religious tradition that America is religious. It's Christian, but we're not getting too specific about Christianity. And that's often what he did in his speeches. And he very rarely connected his faith to certain policies. He would talk about it giving him comfort or being a sense of his own identity. And so what I saw was Bush really drawing on I'm a Christian like you. I'm drawing on Christian identity. I'm not really going to get specific about my faith, and I don't really think that's how I should you know, reach across the aisle to different people, but I am going to draw on the fact that I'm one of you, I'm a Christian, and I find great guidance and comfort in that. Obama, in his National Prayer Breakfast speeches, talked about Jesus a lot. In an early speech, he talked about having his faith in the nail-scarred hands of mm. Jesus, which is very specific. Mm-hmm. And he referenced more religious traditions than, than Bush did um, and more often talked about Americans who did not have a religious faith. He quoted scripture much more often than Bush did, and he connected it to policy much more often than Bush did. And prior to his becoming president, um, when he was kind of on the rise as a senator, he gave a speech to a group of faith leaders in Chicago and talked about how he was worried that the Democratic Party had ceded faith, especially Christianity, to the Republican Party. And he said, it's it's ridiculous. It's, it's not right for us to make people leave their faith at the door. We should draw on what he would call the moral language of our country, which was scripture. So he would say, if we get rid of scripture in public life, we're getting rid of the moral language of our country. So where Bush really drew on identity, Obama really drew on Christian language and scriptural language as the moral language of the country. And what I wanted to do in showing those two differences was partially to to force the question of what what do we care about? Do we care about Christian identity or Christian language more? Neither of them, I would say, was really robustly having Christian principles inform their policies. Do we care about that? And kind of hoping that readers would examine for themselves, like, what do I really want out of a Christian president? Do I feel like they're on our team and that just feels good? (laughs) Or do I want Christian principles to really shape policy. And if I do, how do I feel about that in a pluralistic world? One thing I actually felt really positively about how Obama used Christian faith, and I didn't, I don't agree with all of his policies or even, you know, many of the things he said in his prayer breakfast speeches. But one thing I appreciated that I think many Christians today can learn from is that it seemed to be important to him that he get specific about his faith to open space for other people to be specific about theirs. So he would quote from the New Testament, from the Hebrew Bible, from the Quran. He would reference other religious traditions and he would talk about, and he even said in one of his early speeches, we read from different texts, we follow different edicts. Like we are different and we should be honest about that. And actually being honest about that helps us have a more honest conversation about where we could find common ground as well. And I think that's something that might be important for us to learn from is some of us are starting to think Christianity has been so misused in political life. Maybe we just quit it. Maybe I just leave my faith at the door voluntarily. And I think some of that witness could be a good witness to us to say, actually, how can I bring my faith fully to bear on public life, 
but not in a way that pretends like everyone else should just believe the same things or we already do believe the same things, but in a way that says, actually for myself, I think I want to bring my Christianity to bear on my public life and I want my literal next door neighbors, Muslim immigrant family, I want them to bring their faith to public life because otherwise we're not being honest with one another. We're not caring about the full lives of people. And I think that that's one thing that our history can teach us as we're coming into a much more pluralistic era than we've ever had in American history. I was really interested in that example of former President Obama, who, yeah, as you wrote, cited his own religious beliefs more often because he acknowledged the importance of pluralism. So you kind of talked about that from, yeah, the position of being a citizen and what would it look like for my neighbor who believes something pretty different from me to also bring their faith into their public life. Um, but maybe circling a little bit back to that example of a Christian political leader, is it ever appropriate or when might it be appropriate for a Bible-believing political leader to make a call for a nation to, you know, act Christianly? And yeah, we have this idea that, you know, we need, or many people have this idea that we should have Christians in political office to be promoting this kind of, yeah, this kind of moral framework. So what might that look like while still, you know, holding strongly to Christianity while advocating for religious pluralism? Yeah, that's a great question. And and I will say part of my concern in that chapter was to think about not about elected officials, but about Christians who might feel like mm -hmm. I should leave my faith at the door. But it's an important question, too, to think about elected officials. And again, it's like not an old question. Like there are current examples of people who are using scriptural references in public life for a variety of purposes. And honestly, it is true that most of the time we can find good reasons to critique <laughs> their interpretation um, because biblical language does have this rhetorical power. So people are tempted to use it without really paying attention to is scripture robustly informing my policy or is this just a rhetorical tool to use to kind of show people sure. I'm on the right team or to kind of invoke divine judgment against your opponents or things like that. Um, I would like to see more politicians do the former, though. To say, really, we are being honest about the fact that scripture is shaping some of what we believe is good for our common life together, but not in a way that sort of is a rhetorical flourish, <laughs> which might sure. mean they <laughs> quote it publicly less. Um, I think I would prefer a politician who is really paying attention, who, if they are a Christian, really paying attention to what scripture says about how human communities best function and having the wisdom and input of other people, including Christians who've thought deeply about specific issues, help them understand how might I vote um, as an elected official? How might I advocate? How might I speak about these issues? I would prefer that over, here's a really helpful Bible verse that just kind of tells people I'm the right kind of person. I mean, it reminds me of Ronald Reagan, who was another one of those presidents, very lauded as a very Christian president, one of his speechwriters wrote a little memo before one of his public appearances and sent it to his staff and said, basically, you won't understand all the you know, religious <laughs> references. And he won't either, but it's fine because his audience will. And that's all that matters. And, you know, in a perfect world, I would really prefer that those biblical references happen at an earlier stage than rhetorical flourishes on a speech. Um, I don't think those are always 100% wrong, but I think our motivations get really mixed when it comes to how am I appealing to a certain demographic or how am I identifying myself with a certain community? The work, whether it's for individuals in a voting booth or elected officials making public decisions, the real challenge, the real hard work is 
have I spent a lot of time immersing myself in scripture, drawing on the guidance of other Christians, and then asking how that applies to this specific moment. And that won't probably be the kind of thing that works well as a soundbite, as a little verse that's just added to something. That will be the kind of work that, that again, I think it goes back to the eschatology. It's like at the end, in God's economy, this will be fruitful work, even if it doesn't have the rhetorical force of, I pulled a Bible verse out in front of a lot of people. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, this is less a question about maybe like political leadership and more a question about spiritual leadership, although, of course, that can include political shepherding. Mm. Um, this polarized election season, pastors may feel hesitant to bring up politics behind the pulpit, possibly fearing theological error or maybe more likely offended congregants. How might pastors speak about political life without conflating kingdom and state citizenship or suggesting their interpretation is the only Christian position? Yes, that last part is really important <laughs> um, because I think even what we were just talking about, these two presidents, I think the real danger is not that Scripture informs a policy, but that we start to think Scripture means this policy is the only option. And if you disagree with me, then you're disagreeing with with God. <laughs> um, that gets really dangerous really fast. Um, when it comes to pastors, I, I always make this distinction because I, I talk to lots of groups of pastors and it freaks them out when I come out and I'm like, we should talk about politics in the church. They're like, no, no I don't <laughs> think that's a good idea. Um, and what I have to clarify right off the bat is that when I talk about politics, I am meaning it in a much broader sense than we typically use it. I'm meaning it in the sense of, of the word that it comes from in Greek, polis, meaning city or community. Our churches should be places where we talk about really broadly, what does it mean for us to live a good common life together? What does it mean for us as a, as a smaller community within this community to contribute to that flourishing common life together? The pulpit should not be a place for partisanship, for this is the, the party that you should support, or this is the candidate that's the correct one, or this is the policy. And where you find the line between those two can be really tricky. It often tends to fall where we just feel comfortable. <laughs> That's not a political issue because I just assume we should all be okay with that. That one is a political issue because I think we should disagree on it. So it, negotiating that line is really challenging. I will say, um, as someone who is not a pastor but spends a lot of time with pastors and belongs to a, a community, a local church that I love, I have seen mm -hmm incredible moments in my own community where pastors and Bible study leaders have been really committed to teaching what scripture says about our common life when it comes up in the series they're in or if they follow a lectionary when they get to that text and not being afraid of it because it could sound, you know, partisan, but but really preaching the truth of what this scripture says, but then also leaving some of that up to the Holy Spirit to convict people on. Um, I have actually seen that sometimes when we try too hard to say, and this is the political implication, it's very specific, and this is what we should do, people react pretty strongly yeah. to that. Um, and it's often when we get into the most gray area of what's appropriate for a pastor to, to use their spiritual authority for or not. But I have also seen, I have truly seen the Holy Spirit convict people about specific issues in their community, how they vote, how they treat their neighbor, how they show up to meetings because a pastor preached a sermon that didn't tell them to do any of those things, but did share the gospel, did tell them the truth about what God's word said. And the Holy Spirit used that in really tangible ways in a community. And often with conversations in a, in a pastor's office or amongst people in a pew, or I don't think the church should be a place we don't talk about partisan questions when it's appropriate, but leaving some of that up to the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us. Um, and too often, I think we just don't really believe the Holy Spirit is working or will do mm. that. And mm. I think that's kind of the underlying problem there very often. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. 
Yeah, I want to thank you for your book. I think when I started to read it, I was thinking, oh, I'm, I'm about to be discouraged, uh, but I actually yeah. found myself <laughs> coming away hopeful uh, from reading your book. And so maybe, maybe we could finish uh, this way. As you sort of survey what's going on right now in our country, what are the things that bring you some discouragement? And then what are the things that bring you hope uh, in the midst mm. of the work that that you're doing? Yeah, I think I spend a lot of time when I'm talking to churches or, or Christian schools about media consumption, because that's the one that's something that really discourages me is both the way in which our polarization is often fueled by conflicting media narratives. Um, algorithms are powerful and they shape our political lives. And, you know, I was recently staying with some family and watched like a couple hours of cable news, which I never normally do. And I, because they were watching it and I just thought, oh gosh, this is terrible. Like, I know it's terrible. I've read all the studies of it. I write about it. I've talked about it, but I don't actually consume very much of it. And I watched a couple hours and I thought, of course, everyone is exhausted and discouraged mm -hmm. and frustrated and, you know, hates their neighbor because you're being told to. And really, powerful, like affectively powerful ways. So that discourages me. I don't know how we get off the train of some of that with how much money is involved, how powerful it is. Myself, I'm mostly just like consuming less and less because I've seen how it affects me. When it comes to hope, it's actually connected to that story. I was just with some family and was discouraged about media consumption. And my grandmother, who is a faithful Christian, has been a faithful Christian, you know, essentially her whole life has has sacrificed and risked a lot to share the gospel with a lot of people around the world to take care of their bodies. She's just an incredible witness to me. She was saying, I've watched the effects of this on people and I'm watching less of it. And I and I don't want to consume this stuff that is that is rotting the brains of people in my community. And I do think there are people that are are beginning to see how deep this problem is. I meet pastors all the time who will say, this has been really hard in our church, but also we're having conversations we've never had before. We never thought we could talk about this, but now it's so challenging that we just have to. We're forced to deal with the issue for the first time. And, and I'm also just seeing a lot of young people who not just have changed their minds about certain policies or want Christians to do politics differently, but who see a different vision for what a flourishing life could be and want that even in their very local communities, want to create that in a family, want to create that in a neighborhood. And that is encouraging to me, that focus um, moving from just I'm consuming tons of content about national media to I brought a casserole to my next door neighbor. I showed up to this local city council meeting. I engaged this issue that my literal neighbors are affected by. Those kind of things are not always perfect. They sometimes are still discouraging and challenging, but that's what makes me excited about serving my community, being involved in my community. And it's it's honestly when I most interact with people who I think, you've got the vision for, for God's um, desire for you to care for the flourishing of your community. And even if we don't see big, giant results of that, I'm seeing quiet faithfulness in small places. And again, in God's economy, I think that means a lot more than when we try and sell our souls for some big national change. Our guest has been Caitlin Schess, the book is The Ballot and the Bible, How Scripture Has Been Used and Abused in American Politics and Where We Go From Here, published by Brazos Press. Caitlin, thanks so much for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Thank you both so much. <laughs> thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content helpful, please help us out by leaving a review or sharing this podcast with others. Thanks again for tuning in.